to. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. And verse 22 says, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took him from a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bunamen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I'll give you your wages. So the woman took the daughter and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these are the words of the Lord, and they will stand forever. I want to share a fact about myself with you that most college students find troubling, at least over the last decade as I've worked with college students. Some have been really offended by this fact, so I'm just going to kind of put it on the table and let you think of me however you want to think about me. Some, when they find out about this thing, they say, how do you call yourself a pastor? And others have said, how did you even get into the denomination you're in, the Presbyterian Church in America? Isn't this part of like your ordination process? And here's the fact. I have never read The Lord of the Rings. <laughs> I know. But that's not all. I've, I've never seen any of the movies. I know. I know. That's the thing. Like, some of you are offended. You're done. If you need to walk out now, I get it. I, I so get it. All right. I, I really like, for one, I didn't grow up as a reader much at all. It's ironic. My name's Reed. That's hilarious. But I didn't read. I, I just didn't read much as a kid. And so, like, that's part of it. That's kind of part of my past. But I'm working on it. And for the first time, for the first time in my life, I have just started The Lord of the Rings. Like, I'm in it now. Uh, thank you. I, um, I got a Kindle for Christmas, and I had a free download of one book. And the book that was there for me, it was just like staring at me. I was like, you got to read this now on a Kindle. So uh, according to Kindle, I'm 6% through the whole thing. Uh, I'm well on my way. So I've never illustrated with Tolkien before, uh, outside of uh, um, other works that he's done. And so now I'm going to like, I, I know I'm 15 years behind, uh, on sermon illustrations from Tolkien, but they're coming. Wait, just wait for it. So 
here's why I bring this up. I'm, I'm learning so many things about this, this world that he's designed, right? These characters that he's created, these stories that he tells in the Lord of the Rings. I've met Bilbo Baggins and Frodo and Gandalf, who I thought, I thought Gandalf was like a bad guy. It turns out he's, I don't think he's a bad guy <laughs> yet. He may, he may turn on me. Don't, no, no spoiler alerts. Um, we're in the Shire, I think. Is that like that's where we are in the beginning? Uh, I'm learning about Smeagol slash Gollum, same guy. All right, I'm picking it up. And so now I'm reading about Sam and all these hobbits and orcs, and there's some people and there's some elves, and it's interesting. It's an interesting world with a lot of interesting backstories. Um, I know, I, maybe too early to say this, but I'm going to make a bold prediction. This Tolkien guy is going to be a big deal one day. Like, I'm calling it, I think he's pretty good at it. He's going to be famous. Just mark my word. I have an eye for early musicians and artists like this. Anyway, here's the thing about Tolkien's Middle Earth. It's his world, right? Like, he's designed it. He created it. He has written these characters into it. And these stories are his stories to tell. Like, he sets it up. And he does with, with them and through them kind of what he wants to do. And what I'm picking up already is that he has some purpose to his story. And he's writing it with an idea of where he's taking the story, which is great because it's the difference between the show Lost and This Is Us. Lost was a show that became extremely popular very quickly several years ago. And the creators of the show basically admitted that they had written one season's worth of episodes, like in their minds and on paper. They wrote one season, and they were like, this is going to be an awesome show for a season. Oh, you guys like it? And so, like, all of a sudden, the networks are calling for more shows, and they had to start making stuff up. And the storyline showed it. And so, like, the finale for Lost... What, according to the Lost Fanatics, was a huge disappointment for most people. And it's because they did not know where they were going from the beginning. This Is Us, on the other hand, has become hugely popular. It's popular right now. I love this show. The writers have explicitly said, this is not Lost. We know where we're going. And so they're, like, they have a story arc in mind. They know where they're taking the characters. And so we're just kind of along for the journey. That's a huge difference, right, in the way that the stories are being told. Why do I bring all this up? It's because we're starting off tonight on this really kind of epic adventure through the book of Exodus, the story of Moses. There are characters and there are these interesting worlds, and there's a purpose to the story that's being written. This story is penned by a divine author. God himself has written this story in history, not just as a story that we read. It's not fiction. This is a, this is a true story. It's a true narrative. And everything that happens in this story and also in our stories is something that he has penned and written himself. He has a purpose in mind. And that's hugely important as we go through this story and as we apply it to our own lives. This is so important because as we begin, we'll see even tonight that there are hard parts to the story and there are happy parts to the story. But you need to know that God is at work in both places. He's taken it somewhere and he's moving so we're going to move through that idea tonight. The hard parts of the story, God is at work. And in the happy parts of the story, God is at work too. So let's work through kind of that idea. I can't overstate how horrible the circumstances were for the people of God as Exodus begins. We know that God had led the Israelites to Egypt several years ago, and that was in really good circumstances. You may be familiar with the amazing story of this Hebrew kid named Joseph who had been sold off into slavery by his brothers, 
And through these amazing circumstances, he ended up in this very prominent position in the then Egyptian king's house. And then he was reunited with his brothers years later, which was awkward. And his entire family ended up kind of moving to Egypt. His entire family, which, by the way, was all of Israel at the time, which, by the way, was less than about 100 people. So 70, 80 people moved to Egypt. And now that's Israel. That's God's people. And they're in Egypt. And things were really good in Egypt for a time. But even that move of the Israelites from their land of Canaan to Egypt in this like rest stop in the story that God was writing, this was already written into the story. Even before Joseph, God told Abraham that he would do this to his offspring. Back in Genesis 15, God told Abraham that I will send your people into a land that is not their own for around 400 years. And then I will bring them out. And so now, here we come to Exodus. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had Joseph. Joseph led Jacob and his offspring to this land that wasn't their own and things were good until they weren't. When nearly 400 years later, Exodus 1 opens up and this new Egyptian king did not know Joseph or his family. And he felt threatened by them. And all of a sudden, the scene changes. Things went from good to bad to worse as this new Pharaoh became increasingly insecure and fearful and even paranoid. You hear it in his voice. And so what did he do? He called for a genocide. He called for a genocide. He wanted to kill every newborn son of the Israelites to be thrown into the Nile River. So things are bad now in Egypt as Exodus begins. Horrible. I can't imagine. We can't put ourselves there about how hard that place would have been. For the Israelites, excruciatingly painful. And they had to wonder, because I would wonder, and I'm sure you would wonder, where is God now? Things were good. Things were great. He called us here. Now our kids are being killed. Where is God now? It's a big question, right? And it's one that we're still asking today in a lot of different circumstances, especially when we look out into this world, this terrible world that, is, that is, has all these issues. And we look out and we hear things about you know, mass murderers and shooting sprees. And even today, as I'm working and finishing this, there's another news story of shooting in Kentucky in a high school and kids were killed. Like, where is God now? Like, we, we cry out in these moments when there's these stories across the world, the oppression of people. Or even as Christians, you hear the story of modern-day martyrs being killed in places like China or Africa, all throughout Asia for what they believe. I've read recently that there were more martyrs in the 20th century than in the 1 through 19 centuries combined. And so you look at even like these good guys, right, giving their lives, and you could wonder, where is God? Or more personally, when you face hard days... Maybe even face the unimaginable, whether it's some sort of loss or failure, a breakup or a broken relationship, and maybe you're suffering in some sort physically, chronic pain, a diagnosis that you dreaded to hear, or even death of someone you love deeply. And we experience the worst things that this world has to offer, and you might be tempted to ask the question, where is God now? When things were good, I could, I could sense where God was then, but now things are hard. Where is he now? Can I offer you at least one biblical response to this very important question? Maybe two responses, actually. And, and let me just say, if you're a skeptic of Christianity, I'm glad you're here. Uh, I hope that you would even hear that, 
those problems in our life, we acknowledge them. And the suffering that we feel, we absolutely acknowledge it. And we think we have an answer. I think Scripture actually gives some real warrant to helping us understand why this world is so messed up. And part of it can be found early in Genesis. Genesis 3 is arguably the worst chapter of the Bible. Uh, It's the most devastating one, for sure, because it's in Genesis 3 that we find a biblical explanation for literally everything that is wrong with the world today. What's wrong with our own lives today? And the answer that Genesis 3 presents is this idea of sin. That as a result of the fall of Adam and Eve, our first parents, suddenly everything in our world became broken and tainted by sin. It's, it's like the old world is left behind and now we live in a version of the upside down world, right? Where the root system is growing and it's darkened reaches, goes into the places of our lives on a regular basis. In our bodies, our relationships, and our work, even earth itself is being harmed by this upside-down world, everything. Blaise Pascal argued that the doctrine of original sin seems so offensive at first. We don't want to believe that this would make sense of the reasons I struggle with the things that I struggle with. But he says once you accept that it's a part of your story, it begins to actually make sense of the entire human condition. Once you accept that sin has entered into the world and entered into our own lives, it begins to actually make sense of the world around us. But back to our question, where is God in the middle of that? It's interesting, in the middle of Genesis 3, right in the middle of Genesis 3, right in the middle of the section about the whole world now being affected by this disease, we hear a promise from God that he's going to do something about it. He will send someone into the world to begin to reverse the effects of this curse. That he will personally right all of the wrongs that have come into this existence. That he will make all things new and right and good. And that he will turn the upside down world right side up. He says, I'm going to do something about this. It's the very first mention of the gospel in the Bible. Is in the middle of the worst devastation we can imagine. God's promise to send a redeemer to do something about it. I'll read the verse in just a second, but let me tell you this first. I have this little print of a painting in my office. It's a beautiful painting by a nun in Iowa. Uh, I put it on Instagram today. You may have seen this before. There's two women in the picture. The one on the left is Eve. And she's standing and she's holding this apple with a bite out of it in her right hand. And there's a serpent wrapped around her leg. And her face is just downcast. She's clearly distraught. She's kind of even looking down. It's like the whole weight of the world is on her shoulders. And she's beginning to realize what she and Adam have done. And then there's a woman on the right as you're looking at it. And she's wearing this beautiful white dress. And her face has this look of of hope on it. I, I don't know what words to put with the way she captured her face. But it's just this like... This contentment. Her right hand is gently cupping Eve's face as if to comfort her too. And the woman on the right is pregnant. Eve's right hand is touching her belly. And this is Mary on the right side. And and here's the best part. Mary's left leg is sort of kind of stretching out of the bottom of her dress. and, And her foot is stomping on the head of the snake. 
And what this whole painting is depicting is so beautiful. It's depicting this one verse right in the middle of Genesis 3. It's Genesis 3.15. When the Lord God is speaking to the serpent and he says, I will put enmity, that's strife or war, between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And this is what he says will happen. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. There's a he that enters the story for the first time. And in the middle of all the devastation, there's going to be a he who will crush the head of the serpent who brought about this first temptation. So where is God? In the middle of the hard stories. He is at work writing a plan of redemption. Pinning a rescue story for his glory and for the ultimate good of his people. Now, there's a second biblical principle to this. Also comes in Genesis. Actually, in that story we mentioned earlier about Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers. And so years later, the brothers come back to Joseph and find him in Egypt in this position of power. And they like awkwardly have this reunion. And they're like, my bad. And he forgives them. And and he says this thing that is just so beautiful and so true when he looks at them. And he's like, listen up. What you did, what you meant for evil, God intended for good. It's an interesting response to tragedy, right? To betrayal. What you intended to harm me, God intended for good. And he actually goes on to say God meant it for good to bring about the salvation of as many people as possible. So where is God now? He is working even through the worst that this world has to offer. Intending to use things like sin and evil in his redemptive purposes for good and for salvation. He is writing rescue stories. Does this make God the author of sin? Is he responsible for evil? Of course he isn't. And we see that from the beginning... Sin was not a part of God's design for life. It did not include suffering. It was perfect and good from the beginning. He created Adam and Eve with this ability to follow his instruction or reject it. And they rejected it. And all of us born after them are then born into this broken story. He is not the author of sin, but he is the author of the redemption story to do something about the sin. Okay, one more example. I was on a plane about a year ago. It was December a year ago. Uh, I was on the way back from our staff training out in Denver, and I was flying back home to that time in, um, in Huntsville. And I was sitting with another campus minister, and we were talking about um, campus ministry stuff. Actually, the context of the conversation, I was talking about the possibility of coming to Clemson. And this guy behind us, who was clearly eavesdropping on our conversation, uh, he was listening to us, this older guy behind us. He kind of interrupts us at one point. He's like, excuse me, excuse me. Are you guys in ministry? I was like, yes, you've been listening for three hours. Uh, you get it. <laughs> yes, we're in ministry. And so we start talking to this guy, awesome guy. He's, he's a fellow believer. And he starts telling us about a mission trip that he was coming back from. And he had just recently been on a mission trip down to Ecuador. 
and he had been serving among this particular tribe of Indians helping establish and, and build this church. And he had been to this place several different times over the course of many years. And this tribe of Indians, they're called the Aka Indians. Does that name sound familiar to you? The Aka Indians became famous uh, in, in a lot of wrong ways and infamous, really. This was the tribe that killed five American missionaries in 1956, including Jim Elliott. Elliot and his team had spent years making contact with this unreached people group. You can read the stories anywhere online. You can watch documentaries or read these books. But in the end, the Akas killed them with spears, five missionaries. And so I asked this guy who had been there numerous times. I was so curious. I was like, so what's the spiritual climate of this place now all these years later, 50, 60 years later? And he just laughed. And he was like, oh, it's amazing. They're all Christians now. I don't know what to do with that in my mind, right? Like, horrible tragedy. Five missionaries killed by spears, by this tribe. And now, just 50, 60 years later, and, you know, I don't know for sure. I'm just talking to this guy. I don't know what the percentage is in actuality. But what we do know is this. What man meant for evil, God intended for good, for the salvation of many. Okay, one more example. Is this not the very story of the gospel itself? Is this not the exact pattern and theme of the life and death of Jesus Christ himself? A man who loved the outcast, who dined with sinners, who preached messages of hope and life, who healed the sick, who walked with the lame, who knelt down to play with children and patiently called sinners to himself, who taught his followers to love their enemies and pray for those who want to harm them? And what happened to him? They killed him. We killed him. It was out of jealousy and fear and hatred and prejudice and threat that Jesus was eventually betrayed, arrested, condemned, and crucified. An innocent man, the only actual innocent man who's ever existed in this world, killed for a host of crimes that he never committed. Where was God then? He was at work writing your rescue story. It's amazing. In in Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Peter is preaching this famous sermon at Pentecost. And he captures this tension so beautifully when he's, he's rebuking the Jews for killing Jesus. But he also tells them, and this was God's plan the whole time. Like he captures this tension that there is absolute responsibility for our failure and fallings and even the crucifixion of Jesus himself. And he says, but this was God's plan. I'll read you the verse. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. Then he goes on to say, Yet God raised him up and he loosened the pangs of death because it was not possible For him to be held down by it. Did you hear it? The tension. In other words, what man meant for evil. God intended for good for the salvation of many. Listen, even in the midst of the hardest places, the divine author is penning a rescue story. He's writing a plan and his plan is a good one. And sometimes we see that he is at work in the hard stories. 
And then sometimes we get to see it in the happy places too. Because in the middle of this story of genocide, we have an origin story of a a great mediator who's going to be raised up. Like this is such a great movie moment, right? Too bad they made a horrible movie about this moment. But this this could be such a great movie moment. This origin story, God rescuing this baby. Now, let me just say, I'm guessing, and even as I've read some scholars, Moses wasn't the only baby rescued. This is really kind of a case in point of how God was rescuing the Israelites, even in the middle of this genocide. But this one point is is an incredible story. So I'm not going to recap all the things that happened in the baby Moses rescue stories we read earlier. But just don't miss how intimately involved in the details that God is. Just the amazing and fascinating ways that he arranges the story. And so since I don't have much time, what I want to do is give you five things that I love about this part of the story. And they're so disjointed and they don't work together. So I'm just going to list them. You ready? Five things that I love about the baby Moses rescue story. Number one, I love the roles that women play in particular in the story. In the story and all the way through scripture, God continually shows how much he values, cherishes, and works through the gifts and callings of women in Scripture and in our world. And you may be well aware to know that much of Scripture was written in a time and context where men were simply, where women were not valued at all by men outside of what they could offer men. They were oppressed, oftentimes rejected or set aside far more often than not. Yet God is on record as saying that he made man and woman after his own image, both equally designed and written into his greater story with tremendous value and dignity. And you see it here in this story. Who did all the work? It's three women. I love it. It's a rescue story through the hands of these three ladies in Egypt. Moses' mom, his birth mom, his birth sister, and then his soon-to-be adopted mom, who's the daughter of Pharaoh. I love what God is showing us here about the place in his kingdom for women, even in the middle of a culture that showed the very opposite. That's one. Number two, I love all of the divine irony in this story. That when the Egyptian authorities were throwing Hebrew baby boys into the river, Moses' mom sets him into the same river and lets him float in a basket to safety. And they watch it float, and the very woman who spies the basket is one of Pharaoh's daughters. Now, this is amazing, but it may not be as amazing as as the first reading because as I read about this particular Pharaoh, he probably had over 100 kids and probably like more than 60 daughters. So one of his 60 daughters, which is amazing, it's great, but one of his 60 daughters saw the basket, and, and the fact that she had a little compassion or pity, as the text said it, that's amazing. And so instead of being killed by the Egyptian king, Moses literally becomes a part of his family. That's irony. And also that Pharaoh wanted to show his strength by killing weak babies. Yet God raises up one of these weak babies to take down the horrible king. Like, that's, you just can't write. Tolkien would be impressed with this stuff, right? (laughs) Number three. This is the third thing I love, and it really relates to that second. I love that God transformed a river of death into a river of life. That he takes the hard things and redeems them. That he 
takes devastating themes and he breathes life into them. A river of death becomes waters of life. It's beautiful. Number four, I just love Moses' name. I like it as a name. If your name is Moses, I think we have a couple of Moses around here. It's a good name. We had daughters, but if we had, if we had had a son, maybe one, uh, you know, one option would have been Moses. It's a cool name. Do you know what it means? Um, it, it's given. Part of it is given in the text. It actually has meaning in both Hebrew and Egyptian, which is really cool. And in Hebrew, it means drawn out, as in drawn out of the water, which is what it says in the last part of the text. But in Egyptian, the name sounds like the term son of. So it means drawn out of the water because he literally was, but it also means the son of. Which is really kind of ironic, right? Because they don't know who he is the son of. And like all the irony there of his mom being the one who nurses him. So he's the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He's the son of this Hebrew woman as we know. He's the son of God. Which leads to the fifth thing I love about this story. Five. I love all the parallels to another son of God who would also be raised up to rescue God's people. It's so clear through this birth narrative. A greater Moses is to come. There are so many amazing parallels of Moses' origin story to Jesus' birth narrative. Like Moses, Jesus was born in a day when an evil king felt threatened. And he called for a genocide. And in those days, the days that Jesus was born, Herod called for all the baby boys to be killed. And just like Moses' mom, Jesus' parents made a plan to hide him until things were safe. And do you know where Mary and Joseph took baby Jesus to hide him? Egypt. They hid him in Egypt to protect him from this evil king. Another rescuer of God's people threatened even in his birth by an evil ruler hidden in Egypt while God worked a rescue plan for his people through a great mediator. And this is just the beginning. There is still so much of this story to tell, and I hope you'll continue to join us as we work our way through and see how it applies to our lives. But God is continuing to write stories, isn't he? God is at work. He is at work in the hard stories and the happy ones. And I, and I hope that this is comforting news to you tonight. No matter which story you find yourself in during this season, I'm aware, I'm well aware that some of you are in the hard, hard places right now. And I pray that God will give you eyes to see that he is at work in those very seasons. Writing a plan of redemption and hope. Even when you can't see it. And some of you are in the middle of the happy story right now. And I'm so glad. God is at work there too. He is providing and meeting your every need in Christ. He is the one at work. He is, he, it is not by chance. And it is not by just how great of a job you're doing that you're killing college and look at me. But it is that God is at work. Even in that happy story too. Working his plan for your good and for his glory. But don't miss it. God is at work. And knowing that he is at work really helps us find that right balance between those kind of two ditches of despair or pride, right? 
Knowing that God is at work keeps us in the middle of the lanes to know that we don't have to despair because everything's fallen apart or we don't need to have pride because we've done something to put ourselves in this position. It just keeps us in that kind of gospel, humility, middle lane. There is hope because God is at work writing rescue stories in his world with his characters and with his purposes in mind. He's going somewhere with this story. And he's going somewhere with your story. Trust him in the middle of the pages, even tonight. Would you pray with me? You got to do prayer.